0: You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. During my first semester of seminary, which is grad school for pastors, I had to take this course called Research Methods and Orientation. And this class was meant to teach you how to do research, how to get answers to the questions that you have. And so we got our first assignment, our first question that we were supposed to take and research, and I diligently went off to the library. And I started doing my digging, and I came up with thousands of hits for this question. And I turned in my assignment to the professor, and the professor wrote me a note that said, come see me in my office. <laughs> so I went to the professor and met him in his office, and he sat me down and he said, listen, you have to learn how to narrow your search. You need to learn how to focus your search. If you don't focus your search, then you'll spend a lot of time reading materials that are irrelevant to the question that you're trying to solve. You will be spending all kinds of time reading books that do not address your question. You'll be wasting precious time on things that don't give you what you need. Now, many people are facing this very challenge right now. Maybe that describes you this morning. You see, we all have questions, right? What should I be doing with my life? How should I raise my kids? How can I build a healthy marriage? How can I deal with my pain and suffering? How can I live a fulfilling life? And you take these questions and start searching for answers. Maybe you turn to a friend to get a little bit of advice. Maybe you decide on a career change and you need to go back to school. Or maybe you buy a few books on parenting. You get your list together and you think you have the answers that you need, but what you find out is that you've been spending a lot of time with things that don't really address the big questions underneath the surface. You're wasting precious time on things that don't really give you What you need. You may get some short term relief. You might even get some techniques that help you for the moment, but long term, you feel lost and disoriented. In our passage for today, we encounter a group of people who had very big questions, similar to the questions that we're wrestling with today. And if we really get what this passage is saying to us, then we will discover the focus of our search and the fulfillment of our search. Those are our two points for for this morning, the focus of our search and the fulfillment of our search. So let's take a look at our first point, the focus of our search. For the characters in our text for this morning, their lives had been turned upside down in just two Short days. Their world had been shattered. They were confused, disoriented, disappointed. They felt lost and hopeless. All because their rabbi, their teacher, their friend was executed at the hands of the religious and political powers of their day. They had pinned all of their hopes on him, only to see him crucified. In a gruesome death. He was brought up on false charges. He suffered the most brutal kind of torture. And he died the most gruesome death. This man, Jesus, had done amazing deeds. He performed miracles. He healed the sick. He even raised people from the dead. This Jesus made amazing claims. He claimed to be the bread of life, the very nourishment that sustains people's existence. He claimed to be the light of the world. He claimed that he was one with God the Father and that he was the only way to God the Father. This Jesus made amazing promises. He promised his disciples eternal life. He promised them a reward for their faith. He promised to give them his peace. But now it seemed that his amazing deeds would be no more. That his amazing claims had been refuted. And that his amazing promises were fool's gold. This passage brings us to the tomb of Jesus on that first Sunday morning after the crucifixion. We find ourselves in a garden. And the truth of the matter is that all of the problems that we experience today began in another garden called Eden. It was there that humanity decided that they were going to go ahead and try life without God, without listening to his instruction, without turning to him for life and wisdom and guidance. No, they decided that they would give it a try on their own and they plunged the world into ruin and despair and brokenness. But it's no accident that this scene brings us to a different garden. And what we're going to see is that what transpires in this garden corrects all of the evil and the despair and the brokenness that was created in that first garden. Mary Magdalene comes to the garden where the tomb is located very early in the morning, and the text lets us know that it's still dark. And in John's gospel, darkness and light are motifs that mean more than what meets the eye. It was more than just physical darkness. It was emotional darkness, psychological darkness, spiritual darkness that weighed upon these disciples. And Mary was particularly close to Jesus. He had rescued her from a crazy, crazy situation. A woman whose life was a complete and utter mess. He rescued her. So she felt a peculiar attachment to Jesus. But here she comes to the garden in the darkness. She discovers, when she gets there, that the large stone that was in front of Jesus' tomb had been rolled away. And she immediately concludes that grave robbers have come and taken the body of Jesus. She runs back and she lets Peter and John know what has taken place. And then they all take off to go back to the tomb. Grave robberies were not uncommon at this time. It was not ridiculous for her to think that someone had robbed the grave. It seemed like adding insult to injury. It seemed like a cruel indignity to pierce their already broken hearts. But what we come to realize in this passage... Is that the stone was rolled away from Jesus' tomb, not to let him out, but to let skeptics in, to allow us to see the empirical proof that he was raised from the dead. The New Testament announces the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ as empirically proven, not a legend. Not a myth, not an inspiring metaphor, but a real, physical, bodily resurrection. Let's chop this up briefly because this is the key. This is the centerpiece of the Christian faith. As Pastor Joel said earlier, quoting the Apostle Paul. If Christ was not raised, all that we're doing is in vain and we are of all people most to be pitied. So we got to chop up the resurrection. The first thing that I would say is this. It should be said that the Gospels in general and the resurrection narratives in particular don't read like legend. They just don't. Reynolds Price, who's a professor of English at Duke University, writes this, and I quote, it is especially the resurrection narratives that strike any fiction writer as indicating these are not fiction. End quote. Listen, there are too many extraneous details that are included that have no allegorical, theological, or literary significance. For example, isn't it hilarious that John includes in his gospel that they were running to the tomb, but he ran faster than Peter? Peter? I think it's hilarious John's like and so we ran to the tomb and I smoked that joker Peter (laughs) you can almost imagine when Peter gets to the garden he's like man you gotta slow down John what's going on that's an extraneous detail it does nothing to advance the narrative it does nothing for us metaphorically or theologically or literarily In addition, the mention of the grave clothes and then the the face cloth folded up and set aside separately. No literary significance to this. No allegorical significance to it or theological significance to it. What this means is that the only logical conclusion for why this is in the narrative is that it actually happened this way. This is The first thing, right? These are the marks of eyewitness testimony according to eminent New Testament scholar Richard Bauckham. And by the way, wouldn't it be kind of strange if Jesus' body was stolen from the tomb and they left his clothes? I'm saying. I'm not saying. I'm just saying, Right? Second, if this were a con by the early church, it would not have been the least bit convincing to first century people. All four gospels tell us that women were the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection. But women had such a low social standing in the culture of the time in that context that their testimony was rarely admissible in court. If you were making up a story to try and convince people that Jesus rose from the dead, you would never have made women the primary witnesses in a patriarchal culture. It's much more reasonable to conclude that the testimonies of Mary and the other women are included in these resurrection narratives... Because it actually happened that way. Third, some suggest that it wouldn't take much to convince Jesus' followers that he had risen from the dead. It's been argued that followers of would-be messiahs might be inclined to think that their guy just might do something miraculous. Maybe they were expecting Jesus to rise and they just saw what they wanted to see. The problem is that this simply does not fit the evidence. Jesus was not the first person claiming to be the Jewish Messiah who was killed by the Romans in this time. Did you know that? In fact, in this same era, there were two other would-be messiahs, Simon bar Giora and Simeon bar Kokhba. After they were both killed by the Romans... The same exact thing happened to each of their movements. They immediately died. They immediately ended. They came to an abrupt and tragic end. In other words, the historical record shows that the death of self-proclaimed messiahs, it was so contrary to the messianic expectations of the Jewish people that movements could never recover from the death of their Messiah. Think about this, this is historical data. When Jesus died, the disciples didn't think, well maybe he's the Messiah after all. No, they were utterly defeated And hiding in shame. They were terrified. Utterly disoriented. Lost and feeling cut adrift. This did not feel like the proof of Jesus being the Messiah. This seemed like the definitive and conclusive proof that he wasn't. Even though Jesus was killed by the Romans. Like all other would-be Messiahs. His movement didn't end. In fact, it grew. It exploded in growth. And these same followers of Jesus began to boldly proclaim that he was Lord and Messiah. And that requires a serious explanation. It does. Consider the words of New Testament scholar N.T. Wright when he says, We are forced to postulate something which will account for the fact that a group of first century Jews who had cherished messianic hopes and centered them on Jesus of Nazareth claimed after his death that he really was the Messiah despite the crushing evidence to the contrary. The only reasonable explanation that best accounts for all the facts of the explosive growth of the church is that Jesus rose from the dead bodily. They stood to gain nothing politically. They stood to gain no social capital. It's not like today where there are certain parts of the country where saying that you're a Christian might get you in with people, might get you a leg up, might make you a little bit more trustworthy, no. This was utterly foreign at the time to the world. And this got them nothing but ridicule, mockery, persecution, and suffering. And many of them martyrdom. Nobody in their right mind gives their life for what they know to be a lie or a fabrication. The only reasonable explanation is that he rose from the dead. We see in this passage the difference between Christianity and all other religions. Now, I know that it's in vogue to say that all religions are the same today, but that perspective is one of ignorance. Here's the deal. Other religions offer a leader who lived and is now dead. Christianity proclaims a leader who was dead and now lives. Other religions can only give you a leader whose teachings live on. Christianity offers you a savior, and he himself lives on. Buddha is dead. Muhammad is dead. Gandhi and Ali Selassie are dead. Elijah Muhammad is dead. However, Jesus is alive. Other religions offer the resources to help you cope with death. But Christianity offers you a redeemer that helps you to conquer death. Focus your search, the text is telling us. When John gets to the garden, he stoops to look into the tomb, but he doesn't enter the tomb. He stays at a distance for the time being. But Peter, when he finally catches up, he gets to the tomb and he goes straight in. And he sees the grave clothes lying there and and the face cloth folded in a place by itself, like a discarded chrysalis from which the butterfly has emerged, as John Stott puts it. But after Peter goes in ahead of him, the text tells us in verse 8 that John went inside the tomb, he saw, and he believed. When John stops keeping a distance and enters in, that's when it all comes together for him. You can't stand at a distance and get the Christian faith. You have to enter in at some point if you want to get what's going on. It's like this. If you drive around to any number of churches in our city and you look at the stained glass windows from the outside, they look gray and dim and ugly. It's not until you come inside the building that you see the beauty and the brilliance of those stained glass windows. Why? They're designed in such a way that you can only really see them from the inside. And that's what Christian faith is like. If you want to get inside, then you must seriously engage the word of God. You must live in community with the people of God. And you must doubt your doubts. You must doubt your doubts. Many people are very well practiced at applying their skepticism to Christian faith. But they have no experience applying that very skepticism to their own worldviews, to their own assumptions, to their own axioms, to their own ways of living and being and talking. You need, if you're going to be intellectually consistent, you need to apply the same kind of scrutiny to your doubts. We believe that the Christian faith holds up to scrutiny. We believe that the Christian faith holds intellectual integrity. We are not blindly taking leaps of faith. We have reasons for our faith. We can see in this text, this is another important point in this text. Some people are like, just give me the evidence. I just need evidence and then I'll believe. I want you to see in this text that evidence is not your problem. The disciples were staring at an empty tomb. They were staring at the grave clothes folded up on the side. The face cloth folded, but the grave clothes, they they looked like Jesus' body just passed through them. They were just laying there. Mary was staring Jesus in the face. And did not recognize him. And you think evidence is your problem? (laughs) Evidence is not your problem, friends. You need a different perspective on all this. You need to suspend your judgment and enter in without your modernist preconceptions about what is possible or what is likely. You need to receive the possibility that there are things beyond the world you know that there are truths deeper than what you understand. You can't dismiss this account and say, oh, well, ancient people were just more gullible. They were were superstitious in those times. No, that won't do. The resurrection was as unlikely and mind-blowing for them as it is for us. They were no more likely to believe that people rose from the dead than we are. No, no proof for that idea. None. The text even tells us that Mary didn't believe at first. She thought the grave had been robbed. She witnesses the empty tomb. She comes face to face with angels. She comes face to face with Jesus. It doesn't come together for her. She doesn't believe at first. There's no mention of Peter believing. The text only speaks of John believing at this point. But this text presents the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ as a stubborn, immutable fact. The resurrection of Jesus will not go away. It cannot be explained away. Listen, I want you to hear this. The question is not, does it make sense to you? The question is, is it true? There are plenty of true, there are plenty of true things that don't make sense to us. It doesn't make sense to me how electric circuits work, but it's true that they do. I don't know how Bluetooth works. I don't know how information crosses through the air. That's crazy, but it does. My email inbox proves it. It's not a question of whether you like it. The question is, is it true? I don't like that leafy greens are more healthy than milkshakes, but they are, <laughs> whether I like it or not. We all face questions and objections concerning the Christian faith, whether those are public or private, but this is the primary question, fam. Is it true? The resurrection is God's emphatic yes to the truth of the Christian faith. Verses 10 through 11 tell us that Peter and John went back home, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And when she finally works up the courage, she goes to take a look inside the tomb, and she sees two angels. Then the ironic scene takes place. The one she is looking for, the one she has been searching for, is now right before her very eyes, and she doesn't recognize him. The one she's been searching for shows up, and she doesn't recognize. Why didn't Mary recognize Jesus? She was looking for the Jesus that she had in her head, rather than Jesus as he is. She was looking for a casualty, but she came face to face with a king. She was looking for a cadaver, but she finds a conqueror. She was looking for remains, but she finds the resurrection and the life. Which Jesus do you have in your head? Jesus, the mere teacher, who said some nice things that you can take or leave as you see fit? Or maybe Jesus... A good moral example that we could take as someone to follow in a generic sense of the term take or leave or do you have the real Jesus in your head because the real Jesus created the heavens and the earth the real Jesus rules what you cannot control the real Jesus has stamped an expiration date on sin, sorrow, and suffering because he has that kind of authority. The real Jesus wears the crown of thorns so he can share the crown of life. The real Jesus submits to death so that he can conquer it. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords, so you must focus your search on the manifold excellencies of Jesus Christ. No matter what your question is, It's yes and fulfilled and answered in Jesus. He is the answer to your search. If you're searching for direction, it's found in the wisdom of Christ. If you're searching for help, it's found in the mercy of Christ. If you're searching for forgiveness, it's found in the grace of Christ. If you're searching for acceptance, it's found in the gospel of Christ. If you're searching for a confident sense of self, it's found in the love of Christ. So focus your search on the person and work of Christ. And when you do, you will find fulfillment, which brings us to our final point, the fulfillment of our search. Now, as she stands before Jesus, thinking that he's the gardener, Jesus asks Mary a question who are you looking for? Who are you looking for? He's not just making conversation here. He's asking, what did you expect to find when you came here? He's saying, there's more going on than you think here, Mary. And Jesus' question echoes down to us today. Who are you looking for? Really? Who are you looking for? Are you looking for a man or a woman to complete you? Are you looking for the father that you never had? Are you looking for someone to give you the affirmation that you never received? Are you looking for somebody to give you the sense of worth that you never felt like you had? Jesus is telling you this morning I am the fulfillment of your search. I will complete you. I will be the father you never had. I will give you affirmation in the gospel so that you can know that you are the beloved. What could give you a greater sense of self-worth than the son of God sent for you, dying for you, rising for you, present with you, interceding for you? This is why Jesus is the fulfillment of our search. All of our needs are met in him. All of our longings are satisfied in him. All of our deepest hopes really only come true in him. Why is it that we are moved by movie scenes of sacrifice and concern for the weak? Because it simply taps into the bigger story of the world. Why is it that we feel such joy in these times of gathering and celebration and such emptiness when we're apart? Because we know we were made for something bigger, better, more beautiful, and more glorious. These are little threads that if you pull them, they will unravel the mystery of what this life is really about. Jesus has laid down the breadcrumbs so that you can follow Listen, Jesus fulfills it all. And the crucial moment that really changes this text is the moment when Jesus looks Mary in the eye and calls her by name. This is what changes it all. Mary, that's when it all, all, her eyes, were opened, her heart burst, the despair dissipated, her fears relieved, her hope renewed, all because he called her by name. Everything changes when she hears him calling her name. And earlier on in his gospel, John told us that the good shepherd calls his own sheep by name, and his sheep follow him. Because they know his voice. With a single word from Jesus, Mary's affliction turns to astonishment. Her despair turns to delight. Her midnight turns to daylight. Her lament turns to laughter. And her mourning turns to mission. Do you see it in the text? Don't cling to me. Go tell it. Go tell it. Go tell my brothers. Listen to the affection. Go tell my brothers. That I am ascending to my Father and to your Father. Do you see what happens in the resurrection? All that is His becomes ours in union with Him. We experience the Father like Jesus does. His love for His Son is the same love with which He loves us. How do I know that God is not angry at you? Because he sets the same love that he set on his son Jesus upon you. He can no sooner abandon you than he abandoned his son. He can no sooner forget you than he forgets his son. He can no sooner give up on you than he would give up on his son. Do you see? You are loved like he loves Jesus. The resurrection is the guarantee that that is true. The resurrection is the vindication of all that happened on the cross. I was trying to explain vindication to my kids and I was, I was telling them, I said, you know, vindication, Tiana, is like if Lorenzo says, you know, uh, the sky is blue and you say, no it's not. And then I say, Lorenzo's right, the sky is blue. When I check you and I support him, What the resurrection is, is the Father defending and commending everything that Jesus said, everything that Jesus taught, his life laid down, his sufferings accumulated, and the satisfaction for sin's penalty. It is the Father's amen to the Son's claim that it is finished. You know, that's the amazing thing because because everyone standing around the cross looked at him and said, he's finished. But Jesus said from the cross, no, it is finished. And in the resurrection, the father says, amen, my son, it's finished. The work has been done. There is nothing left for you to do in order to receive the love of God except open your empty hands. That's what faith is. Faith is the open, empty hand. It's the open mouth to receive. All you need is your nothing." And that lays hold of Jesus' everything. That is the good news of the gospel. Mary has a full heart because of an empty tomb. And it's so beautiful what Jesus does, calling her by name. But the more important question for you this morning, friends, is can you hear him calling your name? Can you hear him inviting you, welcoming you to come home? That is his invitation. Come home to the fullness of my love. Leave the darkness and come into the light. Leave the famine in the world and come to my feast. This is the hope and the glory and the joy of the resurrection life. In 1981... A terrorist detonated a bomb outside of a church in Belfast in Ireland. And it really wrecked the building, but one of the most devastating aspects of that explosion was that this historic church had all of its stained glass windows blown out. And the congregation Because these were centuries old stained glass windows, the congregation decided early on that no piece of glass that they recovered, no matter how small, would be discarded. They collected the broken glass, and then they commissioned an artist to create what they called the resurrection window. And this resurrection window, I think I got a slide up here, this is the resurrection window. Now here's the thing. In the center is the orb of the earth, surrounded by the red of human suffering, injury, sin, and sorrow. But overcoming this are the startling shafts of light, radiating outwards like a great cosmic explosion. This symbolizes the resurrection of Christ, raising his people from the ashes of destruction. Around it are woven palm branches of victory and peace. Almost all of this new window is constructed from fragments of the old windows which could not otherwise be reused. And it's this congregation's memorial of past events and a proclamation of their faith in the victory of righteousness, love, and life itself over the powers of darkness and death. No matter what bombs have gone off in your life friends no matter what kind of terrorist acts have been done to destroy or ruin your life you need to understand that this is what god is doing in individual lives and this is what god is doing in communities and this is what god is doing in the world He's taking all of the broken pieces and he's putting them back together because he is the God of resurrection. He is the God who makes all things new. So let us rejoice this day. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray.